Dude, he's here to shut off the gas. Wait, dude, you work for the gas company now? Gentlemen, double. Guy on second and third. Is your canine locked up and or safely secured within your domicile? Uh, yeah, he's at the vet getting his claws removed. And if you'll excuse me. Dude, does it just suck being you? To Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. We got another interview for you today. This time we're chatting with Jason from Unoriginal Vinyl. Now, if you're a fan of Tooth and Nail Records uh, and some of the music they put out in the 90s and early 2000s, and you're a collector of vinyl, then you've probably seen some of the stuff that Jason has been working on, the represses he's been doing. So we're going to get into chatting about that. We're also uh, going to talk about some other stuff in the music world as well. Uh, of course, go ahead, follow us at Growing Punk Pod on social media. That's Instagram and Twitter. You can find us at growingpunkpod.com. That's our website. We've got our uh, Patreon there. We've got our YouTube. We've got merch, all sorts of stuff that you can keep up with there. Join our mailing list to stay up to date on everything. That's growingpunkpod.com. Let's jump into the interview, though. It's uh, myself chatting with Jason from Unoriginal Vinyl. Let's go, we're, we're, we're going to talk about the vinyl stuff, obviously, but let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember um, kind of getting into this sort of music, into punk rock and stuff, and what that first band was, or maybe even first song? Uh, it was definitely Summer of 69 by MXPX from On okay, The yeah. Cover. They had just come yeah. through town in Denver, Colorado with Blenderhead in 95, oh, Yeah, and everyone was talking about it, and so... Uh, they said they're putting out an EP. It's a covers EP. And I wasn't familiar with anything other than maybe Take On Me from that at that time. Mm-hmm. I was born in 84, so this was I was 11 years old when this hit. And then wanting to just dive into everything on that label, you just saw the label on the back and started buying everything from the Christian bookstores, yeah. which, uh, which was great because my mom would buy them for me as opposed to if I went to Walmart or Sam Goody or any record store to get a record, she'd be like, we're not spending money on that. But if it was at the Christian bookstore, she'd be <laughs> like, yo, I'm down. I'll buy you whatever you want. It's Christian. This sounds great. Uh, so so getting very quickly into Goaty Hook Value Pack and uh, seeing my first show, 96. Uh, I have this ticket stub for it still sitting right here. Uh, oh, that's, that's, yeah, value, that's awesome. Value Pack, 90 Pound Wuss, MXPX. Uh, small town minds tour i bought my first seven inch there which i didn't know what it was i thought it was a cd (laughs) nobody was there to tell me you get a youth group leader and you tell them hey there's this christian concert and then you end up at this like cd nightclub where people are shooting up outside of the venue uh and he's like i guess if it's i guess if it's christian you're 12 year old kid do your parents know about this band because 90 pound was and mxpx uh, they weren't drawing church crowds necessarily at that point. They were just drawing 
punk rockers. Right. So people forget that. They make it seem like they started only in churches and MXPX especially was primarily only playing clubs. Hmm. They were rarely playing at church. So as opposed yeah. to like when you discovered Five Iron Frenzy and Denver's scene, those guys were playing a lot of churches and a lot of like Saturday matinee shows at bars and restaurants and clubs. Yeah. So so you said that was 96? Right. And that was... so was. So when, sorry, in relation to that, was it that you discovered like MXPX? How how far ahead of that was that? I discovered them about a year before. Okay. And That's I was pretty listening. good because, yeah, because like by the time, like MXPX for me was that first band as well, um, getting into the music. And it was specifically, do you remember the compilation Seltzer? Yes. Yeah, put out Absolutely. by, I think it was Forefront Records that put it out. But there was, MXPX had Teenage Politics on there. But I don't remember when that specifically came out because when I had heard it, Life in General was already out. My sister had Seltzer. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I went and bought Teenage Politics first because of the song that I'd heard. That, that's what was on Seltzer or whatever. But so, yeah, you're you're a couple of years ahead ahead that's pretty uh but may, maybe it just took him a little longer to get up here in canada you know <laughs> it could be it could very well be but i remember seeing the show and value pack starts with missing you which is instant mm. punk rock beat uh like 90 pound wuss starts with girl song and then uh mxpx starts with your problem by emergency they had not yeah. at all like um they had not debuted that song anywhere that was the first time right. they were playing it and Life in general came out, I think, sometime right around there, ninety six right. fall. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. So was was it the the small town mines seven inch that eventually you figured out what vinyl was? <laughs> Very quickly that night, or maybe the, <laughs> the next day. Yeah, I showed it to Tried my to dad. Put it in your I, car CD. Players. I showed it to my dad, and he just went, "Wow!" And then he brought me down into his office, and he opened up a cabinet that I had never really paid attention to before that had an eight track player in it and a yeah. record player in it. Yeah. And he's like, let's do this right now. Yeah. And he had to and clean then he up. immediately shut it off. <laughs> no, he was thrilled. He was just thrilled That's that awesome. like for him, he had kept all his A-tracks hoping someday he could show his kids his A-track yeah. collection. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's, that's awesome because like my first my first record player was actually a, a very similar unit where like I'm assuming you're talking it was like a piece of almost like a cabinet, a wooden cabinet. Yes. Open, like the top opened up. Yeah. I my, have um, I have one right now. That's what mine that's is awesome. sitting in. So Yeah, my my grandfather, they were moving from the house they'd lived in forever into like a, you know, like a senior's condo sort of thing. And so he didn't have room for this big cabinet anymore. So he actually asked if I wanted it and they lived about two, two and a half hours away. So I had to figure out getting it. But um I was like, Yeah, why not? Like vinyl was never something that kind of um appealed to me at that time like i knew what it was my parents like remember they had a record player when i was younger and uh what was the oh there's a song that's dang it, it just escaped me there's there was uh my sister used to put it on all the time when i think of my parents record player but it's escaping me right now maybe it'll come back but anyway so like i hadn't thought about it since then basically like since being a child after they got rid of it it was nothing but my grandfather says do you want this record player so it's like yeah so we go with a friend's truck, go get it, bring it back. And, uh, he gave me a couple records with it at that time, which were, one was, um, it was Pete Fountain and Al Hurt. So like just an old jazz record. It was a live jazz record or whatever. His, his music is jazz. He loves it. Right. Um, 
and then like a uh, a classical sort of record those were the two that i got just so i had something to play uh but it was you know shortly after that that i went and bought my first record so uh that i intentionally went out and bought i should say um so do you remember like did, from that moment from getting the seven inch yeah. small town mine seven inch was it like okay i this is something you wanted to collect and do from that point on or did it kind of subside a little bit and come back later no it was always there no matter what. I mean, it was every show I went to, I would buy a band t-shirt and a, a trinket or a musical souvenir, if that makes sense. So something to yeah. take home with me that would, if it was, I'm seeing Goldfinger and Real Big Fish, I'd buy the Teen Beef 7-inch at their show. If it yeah. was uh, Five Iron Frenzy, I'd buy the Brad is Dead 7-inch at their show. And I'd take them all home. And that was the only way at that time to hear uh, the songs that never made the album. You know, occasionally right, yeah. they would make those songs onto a comp CD, like a song from Penalty Box or something like that. Yeah. But uh, mostly, if you wanted to hear sessions that were demoed but never put on the album for uh, Five Iron Frenzy, our newest album ever, the only way you could do that was listening to the seven inch comp or the seven yeah. inches that the band put out. So I, I felt like uh, it was a very important thing to just me people would be like, why are you into this? Or if I would start talking about the whole discography of MXPX, mm. people would be like, man, you're so deep in the well. You know every little weird B-side and uh, strange song that we've never heard of before. How do you even know about this stuff? It was never a point of bragging, like, oh, I'm so cool that I have this insider information. I just yeah. wanted to consume every single bit of knowledge there was about a band. Yeah. Even including a, including why they did not put that song on the album. So, first yeah. question: If I met Reese Roper, I'd walk up to him and be like, "Yo, man, what's up with Marty not making it on our newest album ever?" And <laughs> he's like, "Who's this like nine year old kid or whatever coming up yeah, to yeah. me asking this esoteric question about stuff he doesn't even know about?" Most of the time, the bands would be like, yeah. "I don't know what you're talking about. I I barely remember the recording session for the whole album, let alone the song that <laughs> didn't make it onto the record." <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's just the been the way that my brain has worked. I've I described it as, you know, um, I just, uh, I just am very interested in acquiring a full detailed knowledge of something yeah. before I speak about it. And then when I speak about it, I'm articulate because I have the sort of full scope of all of it. So if it's tooth and nail records and putting out vinyl for tooth and nail records, or if it's ska music and it's making a documentary about ska music, yeah. I want to make sure that the information I'm presenting is almost academic and it's, De deconstruction but presented in a palatable way that you're like oh i get i can relate to that, that so sidetrack because you just brought up if it's making a ska documentary so then were you involved in um pick it up absolutely yeah oh amazing like i, I saw that you had like the soundtrack pressing on your instagram which by the way we should say that uh you can you can see all of the the glorious stuff you've been working on over oh, yeah. at, at unoriginal vinyl is there anywhere else they can follow you I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> Excellent. I don't care. So, um, yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's sidetrack for a moment. How did sure. that How did that come together? Uh, I have this very very deep knowledge of a band called Roger Klein and the Peacemakers. They were a band mm -hmm. in the '90s called the Refreshments. Yeah. And they had the song from like the King of the Hill theme song on right. TV or stuff like that. And there's a few of us out in the country who go deep deep on that band. Like, I don't have any tattoos, but short of like getting tattoos, the band uh, kind of level of fandom for Roger Klein and the, the director of this movie called here's to life 
and the story of the refreshments reached out to me while he was making the documentary because they just said, who knows the most about this band in the country right. uh, to the band and the band goes, it's probably Jason in Denver, reach out to him. <laughs> it's probably Sherry and, you know, like Missoula, mm-hmm. Montana. Uh, and so Taylor and I started talking. I told him that I make films and short films and travel logs and crazy things like that. And uh, I started just uh, feeding him information and footage that I had shot uh, out around the country with the band and all this kind of stuff. And uh, when that movie came out, it came out with a giant like thud. It's an amazing film. It's great. But most people don't know the subject matter at all. Sure, yeah. And it's so specific. Like you're talking about a genre, 90s alternative pop, rock, and then you're not just talking about that in the broad scope. You're talking about one band within that context. It's mm-hmm. going to limit your audience pretty severely. But the people in Arizona love it. The fans of the band love it. I love it. Proud to be a part of that. And about uh, three months after that debuted, Taylor was talking to a friend, and they were talking about ideas for a movie. And he called me and said, Jason, you know everybody. Uh, who do you think you could get if we did a ska movie, and would you like to be involved? Yeah. <laughs> and I said... I think I could get a lot of people. I don't know that that's a good enough subject matter to make a movie from. Right. Like what's the, I said, I got to know what the arc is. Yeah. I know that it happened. I know that it died a quick and painful death in the nineties. Where does it go from there? Like what's the redemption story? Uh, He said, well, let's just find out. Let's just start filming these bands, telling their stories. And oddly enough, they made this festival at that time called back to the beach and at back to the beach in California, this was three years ago. Uh, the bill was all like 90s ska bands and punk bands. Right. And so Taylor said, come out and film it with me. You go location scout and you pick up bands. You're just the guy that will talk to anybody unapologetically. And if they tell you to fuck off, you don't care. And that's true of me. Uh, (laughs) So so, um, he hooked up with Leonore as well, who was from Five Iron Frenzy. And she she knew a couple of the bands that were going to be out there. Dave from Mustard Plug, Dave McWayne from Big D and the Kids Table, uh, Roger and Chris from Less Than Jake. So she came out and sort of was uh, helping. She and I teamed up, and Taylor and another photographer teamed up to film the festival. And then we'd come to the festival and film a lot as well. So a lot of the film footage from Back to the Beach is just a confluence of the four of us working together, staying at an Airbnb and the like. Did you see that movie? No, I haven't seen it yet, but yeah. I, like I kind of followed along as it was yeah, kind of so, becoming a thing. So I was running at that time like the social media, so anything vinyl related for Sky Movie was all me doing all that stuff. Right, okay. Uh, and then filming and coordinating, and then after the movie was released, doing all of the licensing for 18 different bands for the the comp record. I mean, there's a lot of bands on here that are yeah well-known with well-songs, and so trying to figure out how to get each one of those bands paid fairly and equitably despite mm-hmm. how big or small they were. Like, nobody yeah. knows who King Apparatus is, even though they're phenomenal. Right. But we wanted them to get treated the exact same as Less Than Jake, if that yeah. makes sense, in terms of divvying that stuff out. It was a fun experience. I loved it. And the redemption actually came when we got to Back to the Beach. Me thinking a festival of 90 ska bands uh, in my mind's eye from Colorado and the music that I like now, which isn't typically modern-day ska. I'm not right. like the biggest kill Lincoln fan in the world, even though they're great. I just don't <laughs> listen to this stuff. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought 3000 people, right. Would probably show up to this festival on the beach to see these bands. That's my mm-hmm. guess. 
at that time. Yeah. We get to this festival, there's 35,000 people. Right. <laughs> and I go, what is happening right now? And shortly after that, the, like interrupters have a big hit on the radio and there's this big resurgence and uh, just like mashing together. And, and in yeah. my view and in Taylor's view, the director of the film, we both have this philosophy where it's like, we're going to chase those stories that we find interesting and fun and compelling to us. And whether or not the audience is going to follow suit is not really the concern. Like the concern mm. is that it's the right thing to do for the preservation of this culture. Yeah. There's not a great documentary all about 90 ska out there besides this one. Right. <laughs> there's yeah, a, yeah, there's totally. like, there's like a YouTube punk rock NBA video maybe about it where it's mostly making fun of it. <laughs> Right. I'm glad you brought up Finn. He's I, I, right. And that guy. That guy. Speaking of guys who are well researched before they totally. Uh, get, I'm. I'm. I, my brain is exactly like Finn's brain. Yeah, Exa- yeah. Exactly. I'm just yeah. less. I'm the guy who wants to do everything behind the scenes, and I don't sure. care. I don't care about credit at all. Like it doesn't yeah. matter. The fact that there's a robot that like I invented for a travel log yep. series 15 years ago that I was doing still put it being put on the back of an MXPX record or something like that. That's yeah. cool. And that's fun. But at the end of the day, as a fan, I just wanted to own like Goaty hook sumo surprise. Yeah. 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 Just so want, want um, to own it. <laughs> yeah. Before, before we get into the vinyl work, um, do you, what, what other short lived musical explosion would you like to do a documentary on? <laughs> um, there's something really compelling that happened in the 70s here in Colorado at this place sure. called Caribou Ranch Studios, yeah. where uh, from about 72, 71, Joe Walsh like built this cabin. He's, the, he's one of the members of the Eagles. Yeah, he, li- yeah. he, he lived in Boulder right where I grew up and went up to this town called Netherland back in the hills and built a cabin slash studio and started inviting all of these musicians from Hollywood out, the Eagles, Joe Jackson Brown, all of these types of people uh, up, and eventually Elton John, Prince, Dan Fogelberg. This kind of music that I don't particularly listen to, it was really important sure. to my dad. But what I like is going to rural Colorado, uh, someplace nobody's ever heard of, and Elton John showing up at a gas station in Netherland filled with yeah. like good old boys in like a full spotted leopard mink coat, you know? Like, totally. And just that that dichotomy of the amazing, beautiful music that was made up there is really, really interesting. And a lot of those people still live in and around the hills of of mm. like Colorado. So there's a lot of documentaries right now on Netflix that are very popular. Echo in the Canyon is a really popular one that Jacob Dylan did from The Wallflowers, yeah. where he talks just about Laurel Canyon and the music scene at Laurel Canyon from Jim Morrison to CCR to everybody that was up there making music. And I just like those little pockets and moments in history that like a scene exploded. The Muscle Shoals one uh, was great as well. Uh, I just like stuff like that. That's interesting to me. And I, I love cool. being well-researched in it. That's cool. That's cool. So, um, Oh, and I did, I did do the uh, story writing for uh, the Tooth and Nail documentary called No New Kind of Story. Oh, okay. So, I've seen that one. Yeah. yeah. So that one was a mess. And okay. So <laughs> that one was a mess. How did you, how did you get involved with that one? I was living in Seattle for a decade and they knew that I was like the fact check guy. Like they, right. they'd vet everything by me and be like, does this make sense narratively? But then I got more involved with, it was a three and a half hour documentary mm-hmm. and it was a documentary about all of Tooth and Nail's impact and legacy from starting with Wish for Eden all the way to at that point, 2010 was like the tail end of Under Oath. 
you yeah. know, like that whole scene. Uh, and I just said, the scope is way too broad. You can't do this the way you're trying to make a 90 minute film about everything that happened. There's no story arc. Nothing's compelling. It's just a bunch of guys telling the same story like I'm doing right now. This, what we're doing right now is awesome, but it's not a yeah. documentary. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, have, you have sure. to, you have to clay sculpt it into a beginning, a middle and an end yeah. with an arc or a, a conflict. And, and the conflict is really tricky with tooth and nail because the major conflict, especially in the early years was MXPX and, you know, publishing deals gone awry and management mm -hmm. fighting and just all sorts of nonsense that also don't make for a really compelling documentary. They're just like legal awfulness. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so ultimately we changed the storyline and just said like, let's make this about Brandon paying his grandfather back for a loan that he got to start right. the record label and yeah. keep it really contained within the beginning era. Technically, there's three more documentaries worth of footage sitting on a hard drive yeah. right now for that movie. That could Crazy. be like part two, part three, part four, whatever. Totally. But yeah. it just didn't need to happen that way. So, so yeah, you see my you see my credit on there. And it's funny because it comes up as, I think, script supervisor, right. which we didn't really know what that was at that time. <laughs> A script supervisor in a film is a guy who sits next to the director and he watches the lines being read right. as the characters are speaking them. Yeah. What I was really doing was changing the entire story. Uh -oh. yeah. No new kind of story to say, like, it can't be about this. I've got pages and pages and pages of uh, detailed notes back to them saying, move this part here, give this this the punch, you know, like, I'm just good at sort of like remapping something in my head when the first edit of Pick It Up, the Sky movie is... Uh, uh, was sent, it was four hours long. And yeah. so you just chisel all the pieces down, you move parts, you make it make sense. So what does that look like, I guess, going through that process? Is that just you sitting at a computer, like reading transcripts or like, how are, how are you? No, I would I guess, watch the, I would watch the film 20 times yeah. Yeah. and say, if you put this little chunk here at minute marker one ten, right. And move it to this part and you, keep this idea that you're talking about contained yeah. to a 10 minute chunk of the film, then you're going to have something solid there. Mm -hmm. But That's it's awesome. just editing. I like doing that stuff. I just edit yeah. my own videos of traveling and meeting complete strangers like yourself yeah. all over the country to this day. I still do that. Yeah. How did you, so how did you get into that? Uh, I went to college and I studied broadcasting and journalism sure. and speech yeah. communication. And I had my own TV Big show band. where I interviewed, I interviewed bands that came through Fort Collins, Colorado. Every time a band would come through that I was interested in, I'd go out with my little like giant news camera and my yeah. light kit and my interview stick and go interview every band and every band like from 2002 to 2007. I was interviewing every, all right. the time I was at ODB's last show the night he died in Fort <laughs> Collins. Like crazy. Stuff like that. Um, yeah. So you're like, were you doing? Well, I guess you, you. I think you just listed a pretty broad, pretty broad time. So you weren't doing that all through college. Like that was. Yeah, I did. Uh, Absolutely. Oh, like well, but I mean, like that whole. Did you do it after college as well? Is what I mean. Like, kind of continue it on. So I moved to Jones. I moved to Seattle to work for Jones Soda, a Canadian company. Nice. Yes. And uh, and I was always the guy who could sort of like uh, connect dots between the Jones soda thing and the thing that was happening culturally in Seattle. Yeah. So the Seahawks, we got an exclusive contract, with the Seahawks, this Paramount theater, we'd have an exclusive box at the Paramount. Uh, I remember sitting next to Bill Gates, watching Owl city going, this is the weirdest <laughs> night of my life. 
Yeah. <laughs> and yet <laughs> life got there. life got weirder after that. <laughs> like hearing my favorite band, Unwed Sailor, yeah. open for Owl City and sitting watching Unwed Sailor with Bill Gates is just unbelievable. <laughs> you're go- <laughs> and you're asking him about it, like, what do you think of this? What is this? He's, I don't know. My kid loves it. So, so I was going to say, why was he there? Just purely with his, of his kid? with his 10 year old or 11 year old kid. Yeah. He was sitting right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I would say that I kept, um, I kept up my editing chops. I knew I had to edit in Abbott express and iMovie worked very similarly. So when iMovie right. debuted in let's call it 2007 or something like yeah, that, yeah. I immediately started editing at that time, just like all your friends are getting married when you're 25, 26. So I'd go shoot their, their like yeah. weddings and edit something nice for them. I started an Etsy page where I could edit people's wedding videography. Just like send me all your junk footage and I'll put it together, put it together for you just as a yeah. way to make an extra hundred bucks. So, so what do you use to uh, edit video now? Still iMovie. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. No, that's yeah. great. Like I, I didn't I, edit, I didn't edit like Ska movie or pick it up that way. Like that yeah. was all pr- like premiere interesting right. stuff. But uh, yeah, I still use iMovie because it's quick and dirty and all the tooth and nail promo videos that I do for these album releases and stuff that yeah. I just have them shoot me, sh- send me footage. I just do it on iMovie quickly. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so let's, let's, unless there's any more detours that are going to happen. Cause <laughs> that's pretty uh, much all we're going to be. I was like, let's talk about vinyl. And then you're just dropping all these other things. I'm like, Oh, that's incredible. That's awesome. So um, yeah, let's, let's talk about unoriginal vinyl and kind of how you, I guess, got into it. So go back to the beginning of that. Where did, where did the, I guess, desire or the drive to start working in the world of making records come from? Uh, when I got to Seattle, I knew nobody, but I just immediately like took the small connections that I had to bands that had toured through Denver and tried to like find out who was in Seattle at that time. And the first guy that I found that was in Seattle was this guy named Jimmy Ryan who played in a band called Haste the Day. He's saying, yeah, okay. yeah. and he worked at Tooth and Nail Records. So I just went yeah. and found the address for Tooth and Nail and drove my pink Jones soda van over there with a like trunk full of Jones. And yeah. I just, what's up, man? I'm Jason. Here's all the free Jones soda you could ever want. And if you don't want it, then give it to the bands who come through here and stop by the office to pick up CDs. And from that point on, I would stop by maybe once a month to tooth the nail and just hang with those guys. And so watch the whole process unfold from define the great line, blowing up all the way through mm-hmm. essentially what became a catastrophe of selling the company to, you know, right. just a lot of crazy stuff happened during that time. And uh, the first record that I ever immediately had input on with Brandon Ebel and I talked to him a lot, but, and he knew I was a big vinyl guy. Like he knew that I was super into it. Uh, but the first one I did was Poconatcha from MXPX. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. uh, uh, there was things like choosing the variant that I was in, you know, like had input on Brandon was really, really hell bent on, uh, doing, let it happen. Mm-hmm. And I talked him out of it. They were at a like a nice but kind of rocky place. It's always nice but rocky with MXPX between right. yeah. the label and, and MXPX. But uh, at that time, I said, "Let's do Poconash. It's never been pressed. You know, let's get some cool photos from Michelle, Mike's mom, and we'll do yeah. some interesting stuff from the packaging standpoint." And he said, "Okay." Um, but at that time, they were just not interested in doing vinyl at all. And every yeah. single year, I would send Brandon a note of titles that I thought 
since 2008, I've sent him notes of albums that I thought he needed to license. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and most people after year two just say, okay, this guy's not responding back to me or he's only responding. Yeah. Cool. You know, I've been yeah. doing this. I've been doing this for, you know, 15 years keeping yeah. after just trying to find a way. And I'm the kind of person where a door closes right in my face. I literally like get stunned for a second, kind of bat my watered eyes a little bit. And I look at the windows that are open. I think about the back screen door that's open. I think yeah. about the garage code that I might be able to somehow <laughs> like figure out what the garage code is. I'm yeah. going to find a way in that house. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's not like an obnoxious used car salesman tactic. It's just like, Nope, this is a, such a good idea, and I believe so firmly in it mm-hmm. that I'm just going to have to prove it, and it's going to take, in this case, it took over 10 years to try that, to prove it. That Poconaccia uh, release is the one that kind of um, sort of kicked me in the butt a little bit when it comes to tooth and nail reissues, or I guess sometimes even the you know first pressings of these records, in that I didn't buy it. I went, ah, I think I'm... Because like... For me as an MXPX fan, Poconatch is not one of my favorite albums by any means, right? No, so I was like in my mind in, in my mind I'm like, okay, they're gonna have this is the start of something. They're gonna, you know, be pressing yeah. different albums down the line. So, so I was like, I'll, so, I'll pass on this. And then when I decided I wanted it, it was sold out. And then so I, you know, hop onto eBay or whatever and just see the prices it's selling at. And I'm like, okay, so what I need to do is if there's albums that are coming out on Tooth and Nail that they're doing, you know, pressings, not necessarily like sometimes, I mean, I do buy new music on vinyl as well sometimes, but like specifically with tooth and nail, like these older bands, if it's an album, I know I want, I'm going to regret not getting it when it's, you know, sold out. I got to get on it. So, uh, since then there's definitely been a number of, of tooth and nail records where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not wasting my time, even though to get records shipped to Canada, it's a pain in the ass as far as what the price is a lot of the times. Yeah. So, you know, there, are, there have been number of, a number of times where I'm like, oh, this looks great. And then I go to shipping and I'm like, I'm going to pay more in shipping than I'm going to pay for the record. Yeah. Like, that's insane. Um, but uh, I, I have picked up a couple of your pressing or like that you've, you've kind of worked on over time. Some yeah. of them tooth and nail, some of them not. But yeah. um, so I, I blame you though now <laughs> for, for my... Um, Every time my wife gets mad at me going, man, that's an expensive record. Yeah, but if I don't buy it now, it's going to cost double. <laughs> uh, well, there is that. And yeah, there's so few of them being made. I always describe yeah. it as like, start with the pie. And that pie is 7 billion people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then immediately slice out 95% of your pie. Yeah. And that, uh, let's say 98% of that pie the remaining 2% constitutes people who have even heard of Tooth & Nail or this style of music or the major yeah. bands on Tooth & Nail under OCMXPXs, the Anne Berlins. That's 2% maybe, best case scenario. But then you got to take that 2% and then you got to keep slicing even more down. Who yeah. wants physical media still? Who would prefer to own physical media versus uh, streaming this album on Spotify, in spite of the fact that half of these albums don't exist on streaming services that I'm working totally. on? They don't, yeah. and they won't. And they yeah. will disappear in history if I don't make 500 pieces of physical yeah. goods yeah. Rem- reminding people that that existed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the 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 2% pie gets smaller and smaller and smaller until you whittle down to what frankly is and then you got to add in other challenges licensing fees are insane 
from mm-hmm. major labels. Tooth and Nail does not own any of their own catalog. Most people don't, and MXPX doesn't own their own catalog. Most of these bands yeah. for ska movie, the soundtrack, don't own their own licensing at all. Uh, so the the pick it up one took forever. It took two years, and people were mad as hell about it. They pre-ordered right. this for Kickstarter, and I'm like, yeah. you have no idea how impossible licensing is for yeah. one band for one record. Take Let that alone. one. Yeah and multiply it by 18 and then you have to you know factor in covid this year you have to factor in the fact that a lot of labels have been putting out really great competitive reissues mm-hmm. you've got to sit there as a fan of this punk music and be like do i buy the new slick shoes record or do i buy the equivalent priced 30 dollar repress of newfound glory self-titled yeah i well and that, that's actually it's you bring that up because i i looked at that and i was like oh like that's my favorite newfound glory record hands down right and uh, as i was going through the checkout i was like no i'm paying more in shipping than what you know this this 30 dollar record just turned into a 60 dollar record right yeah. especially then you factor in for for us up here in canada like the the exchange rate it's like ah I, you know sometimes i just gotta find, find a friend my friend up. find my yeah. find a friend <laughs> get get yourself a friggin a station down here in Seattle or somewhere that you yeah. can get sh- all the stuff shipped to and then send one box one right, time. Right, for sure. Of yeah, the, yeah. I do that for my buddy. He designs all the records with me in Switzerland. So yeah. all the records we work on together, I still store into one box, and I just sent him a 16-record yeah. box, $450 to ship that thing to him Jeez. in Switzerland yeah. one time. Or yeah. per record, you could be paying 80 yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, for sure. There's yeah. like, that's the challenge. Like, you got to figure somebody is going to help you out if you can get a, a hub down here. Sure. So let's talk about, um, I guess, the process of what it is exactly you do when working on these. Right. Uh, whether they're, you know, reissues. Uh, let's start with the, the process of, of what you do when working on a new record, first pressing of something. Yes. Um, and what that looks like for you. Well... I describe, first of all, the, the process is laborious, and I have to secure a legal license to licensing, master use licensing, publishing licensing. Publishing will get the band whose record I'm interested in pressing on vinyl paid, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's not a yeah. great amount, but they own the publishing most of the time for their records. But whoever owns the publishing has to get paid, so there's a lot of legal paperwork that gets filed, first of all. Uh, and I work with Warner or Universal or major labels who are not interested in me at all because I'm right. pressing 500 records. Vinyl, yeah. Me, Vinyl Me Please is doing licensing. They're another Denver-based company who I'm friends yeah. with. I think they're, they're rad dudes. Yeah. They're, they're pressing 30 grand of a record. Right. That's their pressing quantity. Well, yeah, because they do, but they do like a monthly subscription thing, right? Yeah, so when they go to a Universal or Warner or something like that soliciting the one buyer that works in that licensing department for vinyl, mm-hmm. there's only one guy there. Right. Who's, who's he, whose email is he going to respond to? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like totally. yeah. the 30,000 <laughs> guy or the 500 copies of yeah. value pack or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's like, no thanks. So 99% of solicitations on major labels for vinyl get not rejected. They get ignored. Totally. Yeah. They just aren't picked up. So through friends of friends of friends and constant me looking, not just through the open door that I've been kicked out of a hundred times, but looking through the open window and the back doors, started to really work my way into 
convincing people that, hey, we're not doing 500 copies of something. We're technically doing 3,000 copies of them. When you look mm-hmm. at the release schedule that we're presenting to you, 12 titles over the course of the year at 500 copies, you know, yeah, with the money up front, like you have to pay for all this stuff. There's no, like some places maybe give you a 30 day to pay off the entire thing, which is why right. you see a lot of pre-orders that go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see pre-orders and then the goods don't arrive and then you're like, well, what happened here? Uh, that's what happened. They, they <laughs> needed the money up front. They didn't pay it. And then that record went away. As a point of principle, Universal or somebody like that would just as soon throw your records in the garbage that you didn't sure. pay that you didn't pay for in your time window. Yeah. So, yeah. it's a big ask to financially w- license one record. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, picture so, f- between five and fifteen grand per album that you have to yeah. just have in your back pocket. Yeah, um, for for albums like the MXPX self titled record. Uh, I know, I think you also did like the Mike Herrera, I think the live acoustic vinyl. Um, so for those though, like you don't have to go through any of that process for things. Do you just work with the band or? Yeah. And I've got pitch decks that I show them design ideas, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, comparative, like the, the one with Mike Herrera, you know, I was showing them pictures of what was popular at target the motown number one's record the stevie yeah. wonder greatest hits record these are on yeah. sale at target right now this look is very in right for uh design so yeah. i said let's let's focus on mike's mystique his sexiness his class <laughs> you know what i mean and and yeah. they bought it so um but there was no need to necessarily like people weren't dying to own those live sets on vinyl you sure. just have to come up with an idea and 90% of the ideas that I come up with are shot f- straight down. Yeah, like, yeah. no, not doing it. That's too crazy. And I'm just yeah. used, used to hearing it and go, okay, but what if we did it a little bit differently? What if we did that thing as a series? And we did like moments like this, Canada moments like this, South America over the right. course of five years. And then you have yeah. this cool, like carded series where there's a blue cover one and there's a red cover one. And there's, yeah. you kind of explain to them, how far down the rabbit hole you've gone in your thinking. And when yeah. you explain something clearly enough to somebody that there's intent behind it, then yeah. it works out okay. So outside of licensing and yeah. uh, stuff like that, what's um, when, when you are like, are you typically approaching bands? Like what, what is it that makes you, yes. when it comes to pressing something, is it like you, you mentioned earlier, Oh, I, I want sumo surprise or whatever. Is right. that just you then going, okay, I'm going to approach these guys and figure out how I can do this. Um, I guess when you're working with labels and licensing, it's licensing. You just have to go to legal. That's like a legal thing. Right. And, yeah. and you have to see how many they'll tolerate, how, how few they'll tolerate pressing yeah. Yeah. to go through all the paperwork hassle. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been lucky enough to find most of them settling at a thousand. So you yeah. sign paperwork that eventually a thousand will come out, right. <laughs> you know? Uh, but most of the time it's 500 for yeah. now, just to see if they go. And if they don't go, then you have to kind of revise and go like, ah, I don't think we're going to need more of the other 500 of that one. It didn't yeah. go so well, but slick shoes burnout. You could do another 500 probably today. Right. since it's totally gone and do it in a new color and it would do great. Yeah. Um, um, but so, okay. So let's, but go if the, it's, if it's an independent band, yeah. I'll find them or they'll find me and they'll go, what is it you do? And I say, here's the deal. If you want somebody who understands vinyl and understands what a 10 out of 10 looks like mm-hmm. for vinyl packaging, 
and can execute a 10 out of 10, or you want somebody who can do a one out of one, you don't understand anything. You don't understand what a pressing plant is. You don't understand what a test pressing is. You don't understand what the material of vinyl is. You don't care. You just want to have a vinyl record to sell in your merch shop, and you want somebody who can do that for you easily and without hassle. And just so you just sign a piece of paper, I'm a project manager at that point, you mm-hmm. know? I can yeah. do the artwork. I can do layout. I'm doing a lot of layout projects right now for a lot of bands. Brand new layouts, like never been seen or done before. So right. that part's not original. But I basically say I will get you to whatever number on the scale you want. If it's a one and you want a black vinyl with a single pocket jacket, no insert, yeah. Yeah. I'll get it for you. And I'll get it as cheap as possible, however many quantity you want. Yeah. If you want ghost swirl with blob or cloud and uh, art print and uh, hand-signed, hand-numbered, silkscreen poster wrap around on mirrored paper, that's like the 10 level. I'll do that for you. Yeah. I know I, like I just can, can sort of ask them right up point blank. Yeah. How much do you want to be involved in the process? I'm doing this with a band that you've heard of from Denver who's having a very successful Kickstarter who shall remain nameless right now. <laughs> yeah. How far do you want to take this? How crazy do you want to get? Yeah. You know, like we can go as wild and, and out of control as you can imagine. And the fans will, there will be a select group of people who really want that Uber deluxe thing. I just put out the uh, Juliana theory, emotion is dead. Yeah. And it had a wraparound cool, uh, mirrored printer paper poster that goes around a lot like the mxpx deluxe one and a special essay on the back written by brett about how it's the worst album artwork of all time (laughs) that's awesome like a straight tongue-in-cheek and it's funny and and vip concert ticket purchasers who got boned for because Mm -hmm. of covid and the tours never happened they're getting those deluxe edition pressings as as like a thank you to them yeah. And the band just says, you know, like, how far can we take this? I say, how far, however far you want to take it. Yeah. I, have, I have an encyclopedia in my basement of any example of any record and how deluxe or no frills right. it got that I can yeah. show to them. I just had lunch with another really well-known band and brought a resume of stuff for them to just look at. I just dump yeah. it out on the table over an old-fashioned and say, what do you like here? Yeah. What does your gut tell you? It's like showing off like a Sears catalog, like a vacuum sales guy back in the day. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any, um, I guess, like stories of pressings coming together that were just like, whether it's your favorite, you know, one, let's start with what, what's your favorite pressing that you've worked on, like down to the design and everything that you were involved in on it? Right now, it's probably got to be that self-titled MXPX. Okay. Because because of the history of John Nissen, the graphic designer who invented yeah. the Poconaccio Punk, he invented the Tooth and Nail logo, he invented the Betty Rocket Records label, cool. uh, and and uh, he and I had been talking quite a bit. John painted this Poconaccio cover mm-hmm. for my yeah. test pressing. So I worked on the test pressing for Poconaccio. Yeah. I was just like reached out to him one day on DM, and I said, "Hey, could you paint me? I'll pay you whatever it costs, whatever you want to, you know, charge." can you paint me a custom test press jacket on an LP, on an LP sleeve? And he did. And he was rad. And that sort of kicked off John and I's friendship. Uh, But, but that thing came together last minute and Mike called me like the night before the, the Kickstarter launched and basically said, Hey dude, if we were to do vinyl for our new record, what do you think it like, what, what tiers or whatever you think we should do? 
Yeah. And I just like wrote him a text back and I'm just like, I'll do a standard black, do a colored vinyl exclusive, do an autographed version and do a super deluxe for like 60 or 70 bucks with, right. and, and I'll figure out all the details of what that will be. Yeah. And literally the text that I sent him was copied verbatim onto the Kickstarter the next day. <laughs> and I'm like, does this mean I'm doing this? He's like, yeah, it does. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're in. Just screenshot your conversation. This is what the vinyl looks like. Uh, but the fun, <laughs> the fun part was really in the design. I was making the MXPX record and Pick It Up Ska movie filming mm-hmm. concurrently. It's just a really fun, busy, busy, active time networking mm-hmm. with a lot of bands and, and seeing Mike get back to the beach and showing him test artwork like, what yeah. do you think of this, Mike? After, yeah. Like, right after Goldfinger played. I remember with Jeremiah and Slick Shoes, me, Jeff the Girl, Mike, all just hanging out, having a blast watching uh, Sublime with Rome. Right. And Mike and I go for a drink, and as we're going over for a drink, I'm just, like, showing him. I'm like, do you like this? He's like, no skulls. I don't like the record player. <laughs> I don't like that he's looking up, but I do want him to be looking, like, more straight on and happy. Yeah. And so, like... I go back with that feedback back to John and this is like yeah. where it, where it so, turns into. I'd say, cause people, people can't see that, but the, the, um, the, the, I guess the concept art that you were just holding there is the Poconacha punk with the headphones on. Right. Uh, but like plugged into a record player where it's kind of interesting to see sort of like, because as I was looking at that, I go, Oh yeah. Picturing the record in my mind, what it turned out, like what it turned into. And that's just kind of, the evolution of these things, they take time and they take yeah. time to percolate. And the, the decision for John and I to make the Poconacha Punk's face go straight on for the very first time ever. Yeah, yeah. Was in terms of like, I think that there's two versions of the Poconacha Punk. There's the, right. the zeitgeist sort of all around you and tour posters and yeah. funny cartoons and just like people's tattoos of really badly drawn art. There's that yeah. Poconacha punk. And then there's the official iconic, like the iconography of Poconacha punk. And I yeah. feel like John is the gatekeeper of all that. So for him right. to t- make the face turn face forward, looking at you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're like, well, does he have two large eyes now? I mean, what do you do? Like if you <laughs> look like, you think about it, his face is always turned to the side. Even it yeah. was in the original drawing, it was turned to the side. Yeah. Uh, this is like how his face is supposed to look. He's got yeah. one large eye, one small eye. Well, what yeah. happens if he turns his face and looks at you? It's also interesting because in that concept art, he's, his, the, the eyes are different. Yeah. Like the, the large mm-hmm. eyes on the opposite side of where it, so it actually it's, looks it's, it's almost off-putting the way it looks <laughs> well it what it speaks to is the power of a brand if you get a sure. brand design tweaked just right to where people start to get comfortable with it and get it tattooed on their bodies i had yeah. somebody send me a freaking tattoo of the robot for unoriginal vinyl yeah that he got tattooed i'm like <laughs> okay we've made it that's it yeah, like yeah. <laughs> we've done the right <laughs> thing from an iconography standpoint now yeah. i can't screw with that brand too much anymore yeah. Uh, That's awesome. But that was all those decisions back and forth with John over and over again. How does teal work versus violet? How does lime green work versus, oh, we already did lime green for teenage politics. That'll mm-hmm. mess people up. Red won't work because let it happen had that, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. And then, and then I go back to this like instinctive collector's urge inside of me, not just vinyl collecting, but even like baseball trading card collecting. Sure. You didn't want like, you wanted every upper deck, 1992 baseball card there was that was made so yeah 
if I make seven versions of the same record. It's a single LP that's 30 minutes long, but there's mm-hmm. probably seven or eight versions out there in terms of very colors and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. I don't, most people I know want to own all of them. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's just yeah. trading like baseball card variants. Like that's all sure. it is. It's just that. So is that the way have. you work in general? Are you, you're a collector like that where you would get all the variants? Or? No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Neither <I'm>, am I. <laughs> I'm not. I think it's crazy. Yeah. It's foolhardy. Yeah. But I want to own the best. I want to own the best one. Yeah. Having, but, you're like, it's crazy. Having said that, please buy it. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Dude, it's, it's, it's just funny. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm doing so, I'm doing a record that's going to launch next week on Wednesday. There's two yeah. variants of two different albums, and we know for a fact that almost everybody who's going to buy it is going to buy every single variant. Yeah, from well, two different stores. I, mean, I say that's the thing is you the market is like there are a lot of people like that, right? Like especially right. if they are, um, you know, I, I I know some collectors that are big fans of bands where they, they want them all. Me, I'm you know I kind of take the approach for. It's funny because I, I don't know if you saw, I did a video on MXPX and like the vinyl collection I have. And I, typically I'll say most of the pressings I have are black because there's just something about for me, like that classic look that I like of the black vinyl. Uh, so it was kind of funny because when I pulled out MXPX self-titled, in my brain I was thinking I ordered the black and then I pulled it out of the sleeve. I was like, oh no, I actually have, I think it's the teal pressing. Um, and I was like, oh, dang, like in the fact that there was a black one and I didn't buy that one almost surprises me. Yeah. Um, but there, there must've been something in, in the perks where I was just like, oh, I just want to, you know, go up. And, I, go I up do that. I have, st- I have stupid rules like that where I, I just watched your Foo Fighters video about your Foo Fighters collection. And it yeah. was funny because for Foo Fighters, <laughs> for Foo Fighters, I want to own every Skyscape cover of Sonic Highways. I don't right. really like Sonic Highways, the music. I love the yeah. documentary. I yeah. bought Sonic Highways, the Seattle cover, the day yeah. my daughter was born. I went to the okay. record store. I bought Sonic Highways with the Seattle cover. And, uh, and then my wife went into labor. And that was, <laughs> I was uh, hoping it was the other way around. Honey, we got to go. Yeah, just what? Just wait, I got to go. I got to go to the record store. I got to stop at the store on the way. (laughs) Uh, So my rule on that one is I'm going to find every cover of Sonic Highways so I can put together the the whole mural back on the wall in my office. Yeah, that would be very cool, yeah. Uh, But I can only buy it at a record store. I can only find it at a record store. So it may take the rest of my life. Yeah. I think I found four of them. So that's that's almost like a, a game or a goal that you set out. You won't go online and do it. Correct. just like, nope, I got to find it. That's cool, yeah. I yeah, can, just I can get behind that. That's the kind of variant collecting I'm at. It's like right. yeah. stupid, stupid and pointless, just as a way of reminding myself how frugal and pointless, futile yeah. and pointless it is. Well, it, it's kind of interesting though because, like, I'll still go and um, on occasion I like to go thrifting for CDs. I gave up on thrifting for vinyl forever ago because you go to a thrift store and typically the vinyl there is all, you know, like polka or the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is like kind of what you find here, right? Yeah, um, and so. I, I, but I'm like, oh, CDs, I'll still listen to CDs in my car sometimes. I don't, I guess I could play CDs on my Xbox One. I was like, I don't think I have a CD player in the house. But, so for the car, but I have specifics where I'm like, I would like to either own this or re-own this on CD um, because if I lost it or sold it or whatever along the way, but I won't go to a store and buy it. Like I have to find it 
thrifting, right? I'm like, I'm not going to buy it brand new. Even if yeah. I saw it in Walmart for seven bucks, I'm like, nope, not going to say like Green Day Dookie, for instance, right? Yeah. When I was looking for that. I mean, that one's a pretty common one to find, but it was like these things where I'm like, nope, I just want to get this thrifted. So I can kind of understand like the whole, I, I can only find it in the store. I won't order it online because that kind of takes part right. of the score away from it, I think you could say. Have you been in uh, Edmonton your whole life? No, um, I moved to Edmonton about, I think, 2012, so eight years ago. Okay, and where were you before? Uh, all over, like, I've been in Alberta my whole life, so I grew up just outside of Calgary, and then okay. lived uh, south of Calgary before here in Edmonton. We were we were in Lethbridge, which is about an hour from the Montana border. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I've been stuck in Browning before Montana. <laughs> I was say, you mentioned Missoula earlier and I was like, oh man, that just reminds me when we lived in Lethbridge because we'd go to Missoula quite often because it was kind of like the closest, yeah. like decent town. But Have you been um, down to like Browning, Montana before? The native <sighs> reservation south of West or like East Glacier? No, not, not that I'm aware of. Like we've driven through Montana and stuff like so, but I'm, you know, Missoula is about the only place I've ever really stopped and paid attention to. <laughs> so were you like big into the whole like punk scene back then, like Days Wage and Brad the Worst and all those guys? <laughs> Days Wage, man, that is a, that's, that's incredible that you would even, because in my mind, like I went to a few Days Wage shows um, and I was always blown away by the singer's dreads, long blonde dreads. Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but, he, uh, you know his name, right? Nope, I don't think I his, do. He legally changed his name to Brad the Worst. <laughs> That's amazing. That's <laughs> it blows my mind that you would story. know that about a band like that. That's incredible. I know a little <laughs> bit about things. Um, you might know more about Edmonton than I do. Then <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But uh, I guess the the to put a point on it too. If you look at the pie of what I want to repress going forward, a lot of things will come and interrupt what I assume will be a pretty easy experience and, and a nice right. positive experience. Most of the time I'm having to have conversations like this with the bands that I'm repressing records for. So they're trying to suss me out and be like, what's this guy all about? Is he trying yeah. to make money off of our name and get famous because of something we did 20 years ago? And the yeah. reality is I have to explain to them, like, I'm not making money doing this really. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm, I'm a fan acting in the fan's best interest to create something which as a fan I would enjoy. Totally. That's who I am and what I'm meant to do here. And I just happen to have found the like hurdles over the hardest parts for any management of any band or any singer of any band to get through, which is all the legal bullshit you got to deal with, with majors to get these records. And yeah. then sometimes bands, because of the way they behave, will immediately turn me off from the idea of ever working with or right. re repressing their band. Like, I don't need the drama in my life to <laughs> like go through that process. As much sure. as you would love it and I would love it as a fan, sometimes yeah. some things are best left back then. Yeah. Sure. If people are going to be really grateful about it and bands are going to be promoting it and celebrating it and uh, helping you in the process, ultimately I'm just like this weird glorified, like I'm just a middleman who's trying to make these things happen yeah. really quietly behind all the scenes. So... Uh, I'm not an official record label, I don't think. Sure. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what I am. I'm just trying to, well, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have an album that's kind of like the holy grail that you would love to be able to, to do? Mm. That's a great question. I've, I've submitted so much paperwork that I'd like have to blur the lines between what I've submitted and actually asked for to do. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I just got to do the under oath stuff, which was really cool for their observatory campaign. That was kind of a a big special thing for me. The one that I really love that I don't think will ever get any play, but might do well for record store day is this band called dog's eye view from the nineties. They had a big, big song called everything falls apart. They were like, uh, they were amazing. I loved that record so much, and it was so important to me. I'd love to get to work on that one. But again, time will tell. It's a licensing mm-hmm. thing. And I also like it because that guy, um, Peter Stewart, the singer of that band, nobody's seen or heard from him in 10, 15 years at all. Right. Like no matter, I know a lot of people, like a yeah. lot of people, even in that scene, and nobody knows where this guy is, what happened to him. He's just gone completely dark. So part of me, the discovery and the journey of this is like finding some of these people who have these really amazing like songwriters from mm-hmm. my era growing up and like, what happened to you, man? Like, wh- yeah. where have you been? What's your story? I just love hearing their story. I yeah. met the guitar player for the refreshments as going back to that pre-ska movie refreshments. Yeah. I found him by happenstance. Right. And I told him, hey, I'm going to be in Kingman, Arizona on a Wednesday. Would you meet me anywhere between San Diego and Kingman, Arizona to play guitar? Hmm. And he said, yes. (laughs) I'd like it to be within, I'd like it to be, I'm in like Palm Springs right now. I'd like it to be within two hours of Palm Springs. So I say, so I looked at a map and I saw on uh, Interstate 10, there was this little nothing truck stop, not even a truck stop. There was no gas station, just a trailer park. It looked like it was bombed out. It said yeah. De- Desert Center, California. And I, I said, will you meet me at 5 p.m. right as the sun's going down at Desert Center, California and play guitar with me? He said, yep. <laughs> and this was like a seven hour drive for me. Yeah. And I got in the car. And I just drove to Desert Center, and I pulled up, and he was there. And we just sat and played guitar to all these songs that I loved as a kid. Uh, and That's just awesome. listening to this guy talk until it was dark out, and then drive seven straight hours back. Like, yeah. no, there's no hotels out there. Yeah, yeah. So, But I filmed all this stuff. There's proof of all of it. I did it for my travelogue show over the yeah. whole years. Like, this was just crazy stuff that, like, impulsively, I'm just – always adventuring, always curious. My optimism level about people is always like at a nine out of 10. I'm always optimistic and hopeful about everybody. And so when I talk to really cynical bands about fuck tooth and nail records and the man and the system, and we got screwed (laughs) out of this publishing deal years ago, my optimism kind of infects them. If that makes sense. They're like, Oh, well this guy, he seems okay. And he's friends with Mike who doesn't like tooth and nail as well from mxpx or uh, he's friends with this guy and they had a bad but he seems to be in the middle of everything and not offending anybody with what he's trying to do so the more i do this talking to you and if 200 people hear this if one person hears this i don't care i just like to meet new people so that i know next time i'm up in edmonton i got somebody to hang out with because i literally i literally will you know yeah if for whatever reason you need to come all the way up to edmonton Stranger things have happened, as you that's can fair. hear from my anecdotes. <laughs> yes, that's fair. That's fair. Man, this was this was a lot of fun. I, yeah, uh, dude. Came in came into this having no idea what we were going to talk about outside of records, and uh, yeah. you got a lot of great stories. So thanks for thanks for taking the time to hang out. So if you want to follow unoriginal vinyl, I there don't it really doesn't matter. Uh, 
I didn't even you'll, have to you'll, to. you'll find out what uh, I'm putting out the day before it comes out, and then the day after it comes out, it'll be gone. That's just yeah. how this is working lately, which yeah. is good. I mean, it's a good problem to have. We're doing yeah. such limited stuff that if you've gone this deep into the rabbit hole of the internet, you found me, and you're at an hour into this interview, <laughs> you, you probably already know about this stuff already. But if for yeah. some reason you don't, then uh, check out. I think I got a guy who runs our Facebook for us and the Instagram for us and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm busy working with my partner in Switzerland making yeah. you know, your 12-year-old youth group leader's dreams come true. <laughs> you lied to me! Again! All right, I guess the dog's bed appointment's tomorrow, isn't it? We took the cat in today. Honest mistake, Squeak, sorry. My name is not Squeak, all right? It's Kelly!